Pray together that God would open his word to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, remember your word to your servants in which you have made us hope. This is our comfort and our affliction that your promise gives us life. Your words have been our songs in the house of our sojourning. And so by your spirit, please now show us Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Philippians chapter 4. The book of Philippians chapter 4. If you're visiting with us, we've been considering a series through the book of Philippians, and we've come to chapter 4. And we're going to read together the first seven verses of Philippians chapter 4. So Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and all the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, no matter how much we enjoy good books or good plays or good movies, they all eventually come to an end. Um, And every author or writer or director that deals with these things, they have to figure out how are they going to bring it to an end. Um, If you're an author, you have to figure out, is this going to have a happy ending? Is it going to have a sad ending? Is it going to end asking questions or leave it to the audience to figure it out? Um, Those are always the ones I hate the most. I would really like to be told how it's supposed to end, not think about it myself. But the, the point is everything comes to an end and every author and writer has to figure out how to bring it to an end. And it's no different with the Apostle Paul when he writes letters. Uh, Eventually they come to an end. He has to think about how he's going to conclude his instructions and his letters. And his letters tend to end in the same way. They often end with a series of commands, uh, things to do and things to avoid. Um, And sometimes he gives instructions to particular individuals at the close of his letters. That's what Paul often does. And this is where we've come in the book of Philippians. This is the final chapter. Paul is approaching the the end of his letter, and we see him doing those things that he often does, issuing a series of commands and giving personal instructions. Um, And in doing this, he's really just reminding them what he's already told them, Um, what he's been telling them as he's gone on about how they are to live before the Lord and with one another. They're being told once again what he said before, be who you are in Christ Jesus. 
Um, God's people need to hear that over and over again to be reminded who we are in Christ Jesus and to be reminded be who you are in Christ Jesus. That all of sanctification really comes down to that statement. Be who you are in Christ Jesus. Be who God has made you to be in the Lord. Uh, Now that you are in Christ, act like it. Um, And so Paul is really just going to be repeating in these verses some of the themes he's already handled with them. Return to some well-known themes and put them in different ways. And so how does he end this letter, or at least begin the ending of the letter? Uh, With the call to Christian action. That's the first thing we see, the commands that he gives. The call to Christian action. Then he moves on to the call to Christian attitudes. And he ends this section with the call to Christian assurance. And that's what we want to look at. The call to Christian action, the call to Christian attitudes, and the call to Christian assurance. Uh, We have several calls to action in verses 1 through 4. Several things that Paul calls for the church to do. Um, There there are four in particular we could point to. Verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. Uh, Verse 2, agree in the Lord. Verse 3, help these women agree in the Lord. And fourth, in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, Very clear instructions that Paul gives, and we'll, we'll consider each of them in turn. But I think it's important from the outset to notice that all of them end the same way, in the Lord. Right, all of these commands, verse 3 doesn't specifically say it, but he's saying help these women agree in the Lord. Um, All of these have to do with being who they are in the Lord. Every single one of these commands connects with that identity. And that's always important, to be reminded that the Lord is in us by His Spirit, that the Lord is with us, that the things He's calling us to do, He's also empowering us to do by His Spirit. He never says, I've done my part, now you do your part. I saved you, now you sanctify yourself. God never says that. Um, He always reminds us in these commands that we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in Him and He is in us by His Spirit. That's where the power to do these things comes from. We never want to disconnect them from Christ and His work. All these commands come to those as people who are in the Lord. Um, We are in Jesus Christ, and so we are called to be who God has made us to be. Every command in the Christian life flows from that identity in Christ. Right? It would do no good to tell people that are still dead in their trespasses and sin, do something. You can't do anything when you're dead. You have to be made alive. You have to be in the Lord. Um, And so only then can we do the things that he's called us to do. So we never want to lose sight of that when we start looking at the commands. It all depends on us being in the Lord and His power in us is what empowers us to follow after His command. And once we think about that, then we have to return to the command and do what He commands. Be who you are, right? Stand firm in the Lord. That's the first call to Christian action that we're given in this passage. Stand firm in the Lord. Um, This is addressed to all the church, right? Therefore, my brothers. Um, And the note in my Bible says brothers and sisters, Uh, No one is left out of this command. Um, Everyone is being talked to here by the Apostle Paul. This is something that all of God's people need to do. Um, And just as it's important before we get into the command to recognize that we are all in the Lord, 
Um, I think it's also important to recognize who Paul is talking to when he talks to the whole church. Um, he's, he's talking to the whole church, and who are they? Um, well, this, this is a rich verse, verse 1, of how Paul thinks about the church of Jesus Christ. Who are they? To whom is this command addressed? Well, it's addressed to all those in the church whom he loves. Um, Paul loves them, and he wants them to remember that. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love. Um, it's important that Paul, in talking as a pastor to his congregation, it's important to him that they, that they know that he loves them. That everything he's going to say comes from love. Um, that, that's always important, that, the, that that comes across clearly, right? When we try to help people in their lives, when we try to give commands, when we say difficult things like he's going to say in verse 2, uh, that everyone knows that he's coming from a place of love. He loves the church. And why does he love them? Because they are beloved, right? The end of verse 1, my beloved. Um, he begins and ends with love. And he loves them because Christ loves them. He loves them because the Lord loves them. He wants them to know that. These commands come from love. He not only loves them, he longs for them. See that too, whom I love and I long for. Um, he's told them that before, that he longs for them. In chapter 1, verse 8, he said, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Loving is connected with longing, right? You long to be with what you love. Um, and Paul wants them to understand he not only loves them, but he longs to be with them. To those who are all in the church and who are his joy and his crown. Um, that, that's a wonderful way to think of the church as well, isn't it? That Paul says, you are all my joy and my crown. Uh, we've, we've talked about how joy is a repeated theme throughout this letter. More in this letter than any other letter of Paul's. He keeps returning to that theme, that, that joy, that joy that comes from their gospel partnership with him, um, and that they are his crown, they are his reward, um, the, the laurel wreath that they wore as a crown for victory, uh, that's what he's saying they are. You're my joy, you're my crown. Right? Th these are wonderful things to say before the commands come that they know where they're coming from, a, a pastor who loves them, who longs for them, who considers them his joy, them his crown. Um, that, that's what you really want. We know that's what made David a good king in Psalm 16 when he looks at the people and said, as for the saints of the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Right? That, that, that's a wonderful reminder of who they are to this apostle when he comes to the command. And out of love, he's saying these things. And out of love, he comes. And out of longing and joy and rejoicing, he comes to them and says, Stand firm. Stand firm thus in the Lord. One of the joys of this letter that we've noticed over and over again is this is a church that he's very happy with. This is a church that's doing well. And where a church is doing well, you don't really have to say much, do you? Except for stand firm. Keep doing what you're doing, keep going. And that's really what Paul is saying. He's using a military metaphor here. That's what stand fast, stand firm. Uh, that, that's what it is. It's a military metaphor. That would have been fitting for Philippi. Philippi was, was populated with a lot of retired Roman soldiers. 
Um, Roman soldiers as a retirement plan, as a thank you from the emperor, were, were given lands to retire on. They were given Roman citizenship, and they were given a place to retire. Um, and it's because the army made not just the empire, but often the emperor. And so he's very thankful for his army. Uh, he also makes sure that the army retires far away from Rome. Um, he's, not, he's not a dummy. Um, but these are, these are, this is a place that would have been filled with retired military. And so it comes to them with, with, a, with an extra punch to use this military term and say, you all have to stand firm. Right? Soldiers know what kind of orders those are. Hold the line. Hold fast. Where you've done well, keep, keep the line in together. Keep intact. Remember he told, talked earlier about standing firm and striving together. Um, we need to do that as a church. And he's just saying, where you've done well, keep going. Uh, keep doing these things that you've done in service to the Lord. Continue as you've begun. You are citizens of heaven, and where you've acted like citizens of heaven, stand firm. And again, how are they going to hold their ground? In their own strength? No, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in Christ. He is the power to stand. So where they're doing well, stand firm. Um, and where they're not doing well, things need to change. And so the second command that comes is agree in the Lord. That's the second Christian calling. Um, and imagine the, the embarrassment for Iodia and Syntyche in hearing this letter read. Remember, this letter would have come to the church and they would have read the letter to the church. And so imagine you're sitting in church and suddenly you hear your name read out. Um, now, I thought about taking two of you and using you as an example. But I thought, you know, even to do that would be embarrassing to single two of you out. So you can relax, I'm not going to do that. Um, but I thought, you know, even just to use an example of two people who are not in trouble, right, to single you out would be embarrassing in the church. And so imagine you're Euodia or Syntyche and you're listening to this letter read and, wow, Paul's saying a lot of good things. And then he says, I entreat you and you agree in the Lord. Um, how, how shocking that would have been to hear. You know, having grown up as the son of a pastor, you would hear your name occasionally from the pulpit. It would kind of snap you into attention. Um, um, and he was never wagging his finger at me in the pulpit and saying, you need to do something. This is something that's coming to them. It's, it's probably a public controversy in the church. The church is well aware that these two women are not agreeing. Right, because it would be bad pastoral practice to expose a private affair in front of the whole church. Right? It's probably the whole church is aware that these two are not getting along. Uh, and it's probably the kind of thing where they're agreeing, disagreeing over something relatively minor. Right? If it was a major thing they were disagreeing over, we would expect Paul to correct them severely. But he doesn't correct them severely. We don't even really know what they're disagreeing about. Um, I think if it was a major disagreement, Paul would probably have gotten into the details of it. Uh, the fact that he doesn't, I think, probably means it's minor. But we all know that little disagreements in the church can cause big trouble. You often hear that when you talk to someone who's having tr they're having trouble in their church. And, you know, that you say, well, where did it start? Well, some of us want a blue-green carpet, and others of us want a green-blue carpet. And the green-blue carpet, people are not happy because we have blue-green carpet. And you say, oh, well, that's oh, bad, I guess. Um, 
what else is going on? No, that's pretty much it. That's where we're divided, you know. Um, and we know that it, from the outside it sounds petty and stupid, but it can cause real trouble in the church, these small disagreements. And Paul is meaning to try to make these things good. And these women in conflict need to be reconciled to God. And so notice how Paul, in a wonderfully pastoral way, softens the shock of what they would have heard. Right? You hear this, you two need to agree in the Lord. And it's read in front of the entire church. They're outed for their disagreement. But how does he go on to describe them um, in a pastoral way to soften what he said? In verse 3, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You can be in the wrong and still be a good Christian person. Right? You, you can be in the wrong and it doesn't make you the worst person in the world. And Paul is trying to say that. Right? The, the, it's not that these women are bad people. They labored with him in the gospel. This is another military term he uses here. They, they strove with me side by side. Right? This is no small word of praise. They had been sisters in arms with Paul for the sake of the gospel. That hasn't changed. That's how he still regards them. They had been fellow workers with Paul and Clement and the others. They are those whose names are written in the book of life. Right? He's not saying they're not saved. He's not saying they're not Christians. He's not saying that they're great Christians. But great Christians can still fall into sin and sometimes need help in reconciliation. It's a reminder to us that even wonderful Christians, the best of Christians, can still struggle with sin, can fall into disagreement, uh, can, call, can cause public division, even over relatively minor matters. And that's not good for the church. Right? One Puritan say, we expect wolves to attack sheep. But when sheep attack sheep, that's monstrous. Um, we, we shouldn't have it happen. It's also a, mem- a reminder to us that we need to be helped at times by others. Sometimes we don't see what we're doing. Sin is deceitful. It tricks us into thinking. I'm sure Euodia thought she was right and Syntyche was wrong. And I'm sure Syntyche thought Yodia was wrong and that she was right. And they needed help for someone to come along and say, you might be disagreeing, but you're both in the wrong for how you're going about this. And there was an appeal for someone to help them, to help them to agree in the Lord. If we wanted to translate that really woodenly, we would say, he wants them to be minded in the Lord. To have the mind of Christ at work in them. And what was the mind of Christ as he presented to us earlier in chapter 2? To in humility count others better than yourself. To have a mind like Christ who didn't account equality with his father a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself of his glory and took the form of a servant and humbled himself to death on a cross. Have that kind of mind. Agree in the Lord. And Paul says, and you who are spiritual, help them in that. We often need the help of others to see where we're wrong um, and to help put us in the right. Uh, And there's a faithful worker there who is to help them, 
We don't know who this is, um, but presumably the whole church would know immediately who Paul is talking about. And the person that Paul is talking to would know who he is. And Paul is addressing him the same way he addresses us in Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Sometimes we need the help of others to, re- to d- resolve our disputes, to bring peace. And when those people come, we should welcome them in our lives. So there's this call to action, to be of the mind of Christ together, to help those who are struggling. And the last call to action is to rejoice in the Lord. Um, to rejoice in the Lord. Um, right after talking about the division in the church and the help that's needed to resolve the division, it might seem a strange thing to move on to rejoicing. Right? To say, you two are fighting, there's one of you needs to help them out, they're disagreeing, it needs to be put to a stop, and so everybody rejoice. Right? Because we all rejoice when there are troubles in the church that need to be put right. Um, how can Paul, why, does these, why do these things lead to this reminder? This reminder that he emphasizes twice. Rejoice in the Lord, I will say again, rejoice. Um, it's to be something that's to constantly um, characterize God's people. Rejoice in the Lord always. Um, and I think it comes here because, first of all, it's often when, we're, when things aren't going well that we need to be reminded to rejoice in the Lord. When everything's going well, we usually don't need to be reminded to be filled with joy and to rejoice in the Lord. It's often harder when things aren't going well. And Paul's reminding us we need to rejoice in the Lord always. We always have reason to rejoice. And I liked what Dr. Hal Jones said about this verse. What does it mean? He said, well, to be always rejoicing is not the same as a mindless grin or a thoughtless clap, but is the result of calling to mind that the Lord rules everywhere and always, both in the world and in the church, from a night in prison through death to the dawn of glory. Um, we, we sometimes struggle with that, right, when people say, well, Christians should always be happy. You've got to sort of screw your smile on and never take it off, and, and you have to put that front out there. That's not what Paul's saying. Right? Again, rejoice is connected to in the Lord, In the Lord, God's people always have something to rejoice about. Because no matter what is going on, the Lord is in control. We can rejoice always because the Lord rules everywhere and always. We can rejoice always because Christ is King, always. Um, And whatever we're struggling with, we can always lift up our eyes and say, this is not out of the Lord's control. This is not a part of from the Lord's purpose. The Lord is working in this, and He's working for my good, and He's working for His glory, even when I can't see it. And so Paul says, remember that no matter what is going on in our lives, we always have reason to rejoice. And it's maybe especially in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of suffering, that we can and should reflect on what we always have in Jesus. When we're, when we're not at peace in the world, we are at peace with God. When things are out of control in our lives, they are under the control of Jesus. They are under control of the God who loved us and gave himself for us. They are under control of the God who did not withhold his son from us, but gave him up for us all. 
And if He's given Him to us, how will He not with Him give us all things? We always have reason to rejoice in Jesus, no matter what is going on in our own lives. That's the anchor that we can return to again and again. That Christ is Lord, and He's coming. He's coming soon, and He's coming in glory to make all things new. We always have reason to rejoice in Him. And God's people need to be called to remember that. Rejoice in the Lord always. And sometimes when it's hard to remember, say it again to yourself. Rejoice. Right? That's the call to Christian action. And it also calls for Christian attitudes. Right? Verse, verse 5 moves on from those calls to action to the attitude that Christians should have. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Um, we, we, that's part of our identity in the Lord also, to let our reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, now what does reasonableness mean? Um, how are we to understand that word? There's a, a footnote in our Bibles, at least in my Bible, or gentleness. That's a good way of thinking about what Paul is after uh, with with this reasonableness. It means being gracious and being forbearing. Um, being gracious and being forbearing. Showing consideration and sensitivity to other people. Um, that, that too is a good reminder following a passage about disagreement. Um, disagreements often come from the fact that we're not willing to be reasonable with others. That we're not willing to be gentle. We're not willing to be gracious. We're not willing to bear with them. We're not willing to be sensitive to what they need or show consideration to them. Um, and it's important, Paul says, for Christians to show this kind of reasonableness and for that to be evident to everyone. It should be evident to those who are in the church. It should be evident to those who are in the world. Let your reasonableness be known to all. Um, this is important for the church, um, and it's important that we remind ourselves of these things often because the world considers this kind of thinking foolishness. Right? Trying to be reasonable and sensitive to everyone else means that you're never going to get ahead in the world. Uh, we thought about that in, in connection with all the things we were called to in chapter 2 in terms of humility not putting your own interests before the interests of others, you know, all those sorts of things. And the world would look at that and say, well, that's, that's not a way to get forward in the world. The gentle get run over. Right? That, that's sort of a universal truth. Calvin wrestled with that. He said, yeah, I mean, when we look at that, that's how we think. He said, those who act like sheep will quickly be devoured by wolves. Right? It's a, it's a dog-eat-dog world. It's the, the way we put it when we're not in Geneva in the 1500s, right? Um, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and the, and the gentle are sure to be snapped up. How can we maintain this attitude? Well, it's by maintaining another attitude, um, being filled with another conviction, that the Lord is near. Let your reasonableness be known to all, the Lord is near. God's people need to live with that kind of attitude in the light of that kind of reality. 
It's an attitude based on fact. It's not just a mental trick or exercise. Paul's saying the Lord is near. That's why we can afford to be gentle. That's why we can afford to put ourselves in vulnerable positions in the world. Because we're not truly vulnerable when the Lord is near. That's what we have to be reminded of as God's people when we're called to live like Christians in the world and and the worldly attitude in our heart tells us we're going to get taken advantage of if we live like Christians. Um, There are times not to be gentle. There are times not to be reasonable. Why would Paul say we would need to be reasonable? Um, Well, here's the comfort. Here's the assurance. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. He's near in time. The scriptures are constantly reminding us that the Lord is near in coming. Surely he's coming soon. In fact, he's the one who says, surely I am coming soon. Right? He's coming. His coming is near. And we know that all things will be set right when he comes. And so God's people take comfort from the fact that he's near in time. He's coming soon. And when he comes, everything that's wrong will be set right. The Lord is near. That's a comfort to God's people. Um, he's, the time is near. Uh, he's coming soon. Um, he's also near in space. He's nearby. That's the way we are to think of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just near in terms of time, coming soon. He's near in terms of space. Jesus is nearby. Um, we, we had the privilege of thinking, thinking a little bit about that at our Bible study on Revelation, to when John hears the voice in heaven speaking, the voice like a trumpet that sounds behind him in Revelation 1, he turns and there's Jesus in heaven. And we remark that it teaches us to think of heaven as just being over our shoulder, as Christ being right behind us. He's not far away, he's near. And that was his promise to us. In Matthew 28, verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The thing that fuels us in the Christian life when we're called to action, we're called to certain attitudes, and we we wonder how are we to maintain these things in this life that's filled with difficulty and that seems like so many of these things are counterintuitive to what we see in the world. That's, that's what can fuel the Christian life, to remember that Jesus is near. He's coming soon, and at his coming, he's going to put everything right. And he's nearby to help his people, to defend his people, to protect his people in everything that they need. The Lord is near, caring for us, comforting us, near to returning, and putting all that that faces us with difficulty to an end. The Lord is near. And that's how we're called to Christian assurance then, by verse 7. We're called to Christian assurance because the Lord is near. Um, Because the Lord is near, we don't need to be anxious. Uh, Don't be anxious, Paul says. We're not to be anxious about anything. And I've I've often thought that's something that we read in verses 6 and 7 and think, Thanks for saying that, but that's not any help. Um, I'm still worried about things. I'm still anxious about things. And uh, one commentator said, by itself, don't don't worry is a worthless piece of advice. 
by itself, don't worry, is a worthless piece of advice. You can't say don't worry until you've already just said the Lord is near and until you say then what you're to do with your worry. Where do we find assurance in the midst of our worries, in the midst of our struggles? First, by the reminder that Jesus is near. That's a big help in correcting our worry, to remember that he's nearby. The other big help is to take what worries us to him in prayer. We're not to be anxious about anything, but by prayer in everything, we take our anxieties before the Lord in our prayers. We carry our burdens before his throne of grace. And when we do, we find someone who can deal with the things we can't deal with. Why, why do we worry? We worry because we lack the wisdom to know what to do in a certain situation. We worry about whether we have the power or resources to deal with the situation. Those are the things that cause us to worry. And what happens when we carry those worries in before God's throne of grace? Here we find someone who has nothing but resources. He's absolutely unlimited in what he can do. He's unlimited in terms of power. He's unlimited in terms of what he can provide. He's unlimited in terms of wisdom. He knows exactly what to do. All the things that we worry about and can't carry, he can carry with ease. And he says to us, come and lay your burdens. Cast them on me. Because I care for you. And I can deal with the things that trouble you. We, we go to God and we, we entreat Him with our prayers and supplications for the things that we need. And it's interesting how you know, anxiety turns into prayer and prayers and supplication give way to thanksgiving. We begin to be reminded of everything that we have in God. The more we go before God and think about this God who is near to us, the more our minds are impressed with who He is for His people, of what He's done. We call to mind the hope that we have in Him. That wonderful verse of hope we can think about from Lamentations 3. In the midst of struggle, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. And Paul closes with a wonderful reminder of assurance that comes from assuring our hearts before the Lord. Uh, And what what is that assurance we read about in verse 7? And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. This is a unique phrase in all of the New Testament. It doesn't appear anywhere else. The peace of God. Um, And and what what does that phrase mean? It means the peace that God has in himself. God doesn't worry. Heaven is a worry-free place. Because of all the things that we worry about, God doesn't have to worry about. Right? He's never caught off guard by situations. Because all the situations that come about come about at his direction. He's never caught off guard by what people think because he knows what's in the heart. He put what's in the heart in the heart. Right? And so 
Heaven is a completely worry-free place because there's nothing to worry about when you know everything and when you can do everything and you have all power and wisdom. It's the kind of peace that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They're always on the same page. They are never in controversy. They are of one mind and one heart. And Paul is saying, you know, when we go before the throne of grace and when we're reminded of what kind of place heaven is and what kind of God we have, the peace of God will guard our hearts. The peace that God has, because He knows everything and has the power to do everything and has wisdom, that kind of peace will begin to guard us. That peace that surpasses understanding. That's why it surpasses understanding. It's so different from what we know, from what we experience. We don't know what it's like to have that kind of absolute peace. But when we go before God in prayer, when we're brought in the, before the throne of grace, when the Holy Spirit and, and Christ take us as if by the hand before the throne of our Father, we're reminded that there's a place that's at peace, that's at rest. And the peace of that place will guard our hearts for the remainder of the time we're in this place. That there's a peace coming and that we can reassure our hearts before God that we have peace with Him. And therefore we have hope in this world. The trouble of our minds and the trouble of our hearts, they meet the God who is perfectly at peace and exercising His perfect control through Christ our King. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Um, When we're struggling with the things we need to do, we're to call to mind that we're in the Lord. When we're struggling with the attitudes that we're to have, we're to assure ourselves that God is in control of all things. And rather than worry, let's take them before Him. Let's lay them on Him, who can bear with ease the things that we find impossible. Let's let the peace of God guard our hearts in Christ Jesus now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how thankful we are for this reminder from the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of what you would have us remember about what he's taught, these rich and comforting notions of who we are in Christ, how we are to act, how we are to think, um, and where we can find assurance in him. Father in heaven, would you take everything that worries and concerns us and taken under your care. Would you comfort our hearts to know that these burdens that we cannot bear in our own strength, you can bear by your power. Um, Thank you that you care for us, that you're willing to take the things that we struggle with. And would you help your peace to guard our hearts, for us to know something of that peace that passes understanding, and that it would guard our hearts and minds in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is reigning now and who is coming soon. Thank you that he is with us to the end of the age, and hear us, we pray in his name. Amen.